Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I am Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's show, we will be discussing NPR quitting Twitter and whether that could just be the tip of the iceberg for other big accounts leaving Twitter. We also crown the most uncancelable man on earth. Then we're discussing the Super Bowl of libel cases in the U.S. and we'll touch on HBO's newly renamed streaming service, which I'm not going to lie, I'm not a huge fan of. Jam-packed show as always, Neil. Let's ride. Have you looked at the weather today? It's supposed to be 90 degrees, so I'm ready to call it. It is iced coffee season. See, for me, it's never iced coffee season. I am hot coffee all year round because iced coffee it gives me a little bit of a tummy ache. So does regular coffee. I don't know. For some coffee. reason, it hits me differently. I don't know. You are in the minority, my friend, because for most people, iced coffee season never ends. I was just looking at this up. Starbucks says that uh, cold beverages have accounted for more than 60% of all of its sales in every single quarter. Wow. Cold beverages are taking over the world. I am clearly in the minority. I still have not tried the Oleato olive oil coffee from Starbucks, so maybe after this. Are you worried about your stomach getting messed up from iced coffee? Because that apparently <laughs> sends you to the bathroom within five minutes. That's for dang sure, but I still want to try it. We'll find out. Just don't do it right before our podcast. Fair enough. Or else we'll have you know a long interruption in the middle. <laughs> All right, let's go to our first story. Uh, yesterday, the Biden administration proposed new regulations on auto emissions that experts say will lead to the biggest transformation in the industry since Henry Ford took his horseless carriage for a test run in 1896. It's true. It's a huge deal. We know that automakers have been investing tens of billions of dollars into switching over their fleets to electric vehicles over the past few years. But this plan puts that transition on 2x speed which I wonder if anyone listens to this on 2x speed. I'm curious how we sound. So here's the goal of these new regulations. They want 67% of new passenger cars to be electric by 2032, nine years from now, and a quarter of new heavy trucks to be all electric. To give you a sense of how much growth needs to happen in that time span, electric vehicles last year accounted for 5.8% of new cars sold in the U.S., and electric trucks were less than 2% of the total. So this is a monumental task. Yeah, it's a lofty, lofty goal. Uh, they're definitely swinging from the fences. And the two things that are kind of holding this back are, one, building a reliable charging infrastructure along the U.S. highway system, and then, two, having the domestic production of the materials necessary for EV batteries. So those are like the two big things that are kind of throwing a dash of cold water on this lofty goal, because without those two things, you can't have, you can't support that many electric vehicles yeah. on the road. So that's truly, even though we're seeing these headlines of this huge push for electric vehicles, I do think there is some huge constraints on it. Yeah. And the government said, look, we know we're putting this carrot on, this stick on you. We'll also give you some carrots. We know that there's this $7,500 tax credit for people who are buying EVs. They're also giving out loan, very generous loans and grants to EV companies that are building this charging network. Um, right. So they're saying, look, 
we know this is a huge task. We're going to help you out, but I'm not sure it's going to be enough. Right. And I also was doing a little research on, actually, I read this in the brew this morning. I know that's where I get my research from, but the the brew kind of actually framed it as a lot of, uh, uh, buyers of vehicles are not actually open to the idea of purchasing an electric vehicle. I believe it was 47 or 47% of people said that they would not consider an EV purchase for their next vehicle. Mm-hmm. But I looked at that and said, wait a second, 53% of people said that they may be open to it, which is a pretty hefty number, yeah. I, I would think. I think people are very concerned about the charging situation. Many EVs yeah. don't go past, you know, $250 on, or 250 <laughs> miles on a single charge. And for people like me who like doing road trips, I'm just thinking, well, why would I get an EV? I have to stop, you know, all along the way. I have to go out of my way to, you know, charge up. Meanwhile, there are gas stations everywhere, and that definitely is a significant barrier. Another barrier is the cost of EVs. I mean, they've, I know Tesla has cut prices five times over the past few months, but they're way more pricey than regular and, and internal combustion engine cars. I think at the end of 2022, the average price of an electric vehicle was 61488 compared to 49000 for all passengers, cars, and trucks. So they have to bring the price down or else people will right. balk at this. But these big automobile companies are investing in it. Ford is yeah. plowing $1.3 billion to be to build an EV manufacturing hub in Canada. And then GM actually just invested in a $50 million round for a lithium in- extraction startup. Yeah. So they are kind of tackling this issue. They're building up the infrastructure for it and also investing in like the new wave of research that might make it more efficient. All right, Neil, uh, let's move on to our next story. The NPR versus Twitter beef has reached a breaking point. NPR made the decision yesterday to leave Twitter, saying it no longer will post fresh content to any of its 52 official Twitter feeds, which, by the way, I did not know NPR had. NPR music. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, Politics. I don't know. Um, It's the first major news organization to go silent on the platform in the Elon era. So how did we get here? It goes back to Elon's decision to label NPR's Twitter account as state-affiliated media that he chose to do two weeks ago. NPR pushed back against that label, saying, one, it makes it sound like it doesn't have editorial independence, and it lumps them in with actual state-affiliated media from Russia and China. And then two, it also said it receives less than 1% of its funding from government sources. So the label is kind of misleading. Mm -hmm. So Twitter did soften the label to government-funded media, but that wasn't enough for NPR. It decided to pack up its lunch and go somewhere else. NPR CEO said yesterday that he would never have our content go anywhere that would risk our credibility. Mm-hmm. So, Neil, what do you make of NPR kind of piecing out? Well, I know what we want to focus on is the fact that tw- what was Twitter giving NPR in the first place from a business case? NPR uses Twitter to distribute its content, distribute its articles, distribute its podcasts. And, tw- and NPR is coming out and saying, look, yeah, Twitter is a big headache for us on the politics front, on the Elon front. But it's also not just doing well for us in terms of allowing us to get our content out there. Twitter, NPR's analytics show that less than 2% of its traffic comes from Twitter. Yeah. And so other news organizations are probably spending this morning looking at their own traffic numbers and being like, okay, well, how much do we get from Twitter? How much do we get from Google? How, ma- how much do we get from other social media platforms? And maybe the juice isn't worth the squeeze to you know, navigate Elon's whims on Twitter when they're not getting that much value from it. For sure. I, yeah, I did check. NPR has 8.8 million followers on its flagship account. It, it has more uh, spread across. 
its 52 Twitter accounts. I do think, though, just to like push back on the idea that it's only getting 2% of its actual traffic, yes, it might not be driving legitimate clicks to mm. its news sources, but there is Twitter is the uh, pulpit of the masses. It's where discussion takes place. And if you remove yourself from that, kind of the the chat room of the internet then you're you risk losing relevancy it's kind of a amorphous idea of this like you'll lose re relevancy but i do mm -hmm. think that if npr just no longer exists within that discourse on twitter they are hurting themselves on some level that's just me speculating a little bit yeah. but i do think there is some legitimate we'll see there. if this network effect that built twitter up goes in reverse because right. the only reason people are on twitter is because other people on twitter if you start removing big posters like npr with 8.8 .8 million followers from the equation we know that other big accounts have left twitter mm -hmm. then you get into this downward spiral where Twitter becomes not that interesting because people aren't posting. And then when other big posters see other people not posting and they don't get any value from the platform, they remove themselves. So you get, uh, I think it's pretty, I don't remember, but it's kind of what happened to MySpace, right? Yeah. Like they just, people stop going on and they get into this death spiral where the, the value of the, and the content becomes less interesting and less interesting over time. People start stop posting and moving elsewhere. We know that Substack just launched its Twitter rival right. called there Notes. Are, there are alternatives now. There are. The first time in a while. Blue Sky even, which is the decentralized version of Twitter. That Blue Sky? I've never heard of that. That Jack Dorsey's been working on yeah. in the background. It's it's live now. What if Jack Dorsey takes over I know. Twitter? Oh my gosh. What it's a his baby. Beautiful storybook ending. So uh, I guess we'll definitely be watching to see if other news organizations follow uh, NPR. In PBS actually already did yeah. jump ship as well. They're saying they're not posting either. Right. All right, jury selection began today in easily the most closely watched and significant business trial of the year, if not the last two years. I'm talking about Dominion Voting Systems, which makes voting machines, is suing Fox for $1.6 billion in damages for defaming it following the 2020 presidential election. Dominion says Fox knowingly said false things about it, like that it was involved in a conspiracy to rig the 2020 election for Biden and changed its devices to help out Biden. So, like many corpus trials, this one's happening in Delaware, uh, where Elon Musk's Twitter trial was supposed to take place before they reached an agreement. Most corporations are incorporated in Delaware, and its court system is very experienced in dealing with business cases like this, which means that people in Newcastle County, Delaware, 1,600 of them just got jury, just got jury duty notices, and so they're going to start to question them uh, and whittle them down to just 12 jurors and six alternates before the six-week trial. This is a big one, Neil. I I mentioned that it's the Super Bowl of libel we law. We need a new metaphor. I know. We were trying to come up with a better one. We, we, the WrestleMania of I like, libel. I like WrestleMania. It, it's big. But honestly, the, this case does hinge on um, – let's, let's talk about like what is yeah. going to cause this case to be significant. It's very difficult to prove libel in the American legal system. There was a precedent set all the way back in 1964 that sets an incredibly high bar for public figures to prove that they have been defamed. That's because the plaintiff has to prove that not only did an organization publish false information, they did so with actual malice. Yeah. And we've touched on that term before, but it's basically saying that they either published the information knowing it was false or they displayed a reckless disregard for the truth. Mm -hmm. So again, it, there is that legal gray area, gray area. That's why we are having this case at all. But that's the key point here. If Dominion can prove actual malice, then we might actually see one of the first times that a news organization is hit with a libel lawsuit. Yeah.
and Dominion already cleared one hurdle. The judge already ruled that they these uh, remarks by Fox about them were false. Right. So now the jury just has to decide whether it, the motivation behind it, essentially. Yeah, that's but, a cr- that is a crazy part that the judge is yeah. like, yeah, they were saying false right. stuff. It's a big win for Dominion already. Right. And we saw that, you know, all these text messages that were released as part of the court filing from Fox News anchors saying that they knew that the election claims were false, but they wanted to share it with their viewers anyway because their ratings were taking a hit. Right. It is. They are saying. There's a lot of evidence. Right. And the the text messages themselves are just a treasure trove of, you have Chuckle Carlson saying like he hates Trump. So And he just interviewed him two days ago. Right. We're going to see, as this case progresses, we're going to see more tea come out. So I'm excited for that the drama portion and this is and and you mentioned this is the super bowl the wrestlemania of libel cases because it means a lot for other this entire industry this is just not self-contained for fox news so even for people who hate fox news's content they say that fox losing could lead to other libel suits against other news organizations and chip away at press freedoms and then even on the other side a fox win could lead to calls to change libel law because people argue Wow, if Fox can't even, <laughs> yeah. if Fox isn't, you know, convicted of being, of defaming Dominion voting systems for this, then what, why do you even have a, a libel law in the place? Yeah, for sure. You summed it up well. Thank All right, Neil, before we <laughs> jump into our next story, we're going to take a quick break. Neil, there's this famous scene in The Social Network where Justin Timberlake's character tells Jesse Eisenberg's Mark Zuckerberg to drop the the from Facebook because it's cleaner. Well, it looks like Warner Bros. Discovery was taking notes because it's also dropping three superfluous letters from its new streaming platform. Going forward, HBO Max will now be known as Just Mac. That was one of your better intros. Thank you. I, I was really proud of that one. Now, I can see your eyes rolling a little bit, Neil, not just because the intro, but because it sounds like kind of a dumb decision to drop HBO, given all the incredible content associated with that platform, Game of Thrones, Succession. I don't even need to go into it. Everyone knows HBO's great shows. But that was actually the problem, according to uh, Warner Bros. CEO David Zaslav. The brand was too elite too rarefied to attract the customers that the company wanted to sell these less high quality shows to like Naked and Afraid and Dr. Pimple Popper. Don't you slander them. I'm suing you for libel. I know. Dr. Pimple Popper. It's just a different sort of audience. So Neil, what do you make about HBO Max ditching the HBO? Um, Well, I just want to take a step back and talk about how we got here in the first place, which was that Warner Media merged with Discovery. And it's kind of a weird pairing. Discovery, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, has all of these like unscripted reality shows. Discovery owns HGTV, Food Network, TLC. And that's combined with Warner Media that owns CNN and HBO. So that happened last year. And this guy was left with, Zaslav was left with, okay, I got Discovery Plus, which has all of these reality shows. And then I have HBO Max, which has euphoria <laughs> like what do i do with this and i guess he decided to put them together and create the the slogan here is max is the one to watch and emphasis on one and so they think they can successfully pair a point what they call appointment viewing which is the successions the last of us the sunday night hbo things you you know with the comfort viewing of reality shows, which you kind of just put on the background, right. watch for hours on end. So they, it just wants to become this one mega streaming service. I'm fine with it. I, I know you don't like the fact that they're reducing the or they're kind of like eliminating the, the HBO from it. Right. But this is I think it just comes down to like what content is on there. And this seems like it has 
really, really good content because people love these reality shows and people love these HBO shows. They're different audiences and they're going to bring them all into one place. Seems seems smart. It is at the core. They are trying to compete with Disney Plus and Netflix. And just to give the context on how big their audience is. So right now, all the HBO platforms, Discovery Plus together reaches 96 million people according it back in 2022 netflix gets five times as many monthly viewers as that and their subscriber numbers are pushing 220 million same as disney plus so you can see why max is making this push because it's around half the size and gets 20 percent of the of the viewing hours so this is their play they want to really enter the streaming wars with this and I don't know. I, I do think you're right. It's appealing to two different customer bases. That could be a messy middle, or they could yeah. just crack the code, and they're going to actually make inroads into the streaming wars. I'm laughing because Toby just says messy middle a lot recently. It's, your, it's, your it's a new term I learned. Should we talk about what people can expect? So if you have HBO Max, you'll get ro- most people will get rolled over into Max. There is two tiers, same pricing structure as HBO Max, $10 a month for an ad-supported tier, and $16 a month for commercial free experience and the biggest announcement the biggest content announcement was oh yeah harry Harry potter so they're doing a decade-long series they're already committing to 10 years which seems like a eternity in the content universe it's decades long in terms of the harry potter universe the Ah. actual series is not really well it's going to be one series or one season per book they're going back to the original books they're doing a harry potter series so that's at least seven and then maybe you build in chunks to uh i wonder you know. if we're, we're still gonna be doing the podcast talking about harry potter i hope so season I'm, 11 i'm super excited i mean yeah. it's it's gonna lead to so many book sales yeah. again yeah all right well, let's move on um I'm interested. I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on Max. Uh, okay, Neil's numbers. It's Thursday. So this segment, I share three stats from the week's news that will make your jaw drop so low it'll reach the Earth's core <laughs> and get melted in the fiery abyss. Wow. Okay, that is an intro right there. That's an intro, and I just hope I can live up to that. First stat, these days, Latin music is pop music. So Latin music revenues in the U.S. topped $1 billion for the first time last year, jumping 24% from last year crushing the broader music market how is it making so much money streaming stream streaming accounts for 97 percent of all latin music revenues bad bunny the most streamed artist globally on spotify for the third year in a row last year latin music is eating everybody's lunch it's just so fun to listen to and dance to it it just scratches all the right itches for me um and i love it i can that is a crazy number, though, that how yeah. how big it's become. It's double-digit growth for the past two years, far outpacing any other type of genre in the industry. Mm-hmm. I remember when Bad Bunny came to Yankee Stadium last summer. Yeah. I don't know if anyone in our control room uh, went, but it seems like everybody went. I was at, a, like, a function a couple hours before, and pretty much everyone was on their phones looking for tickets mm-hmm. to yeah. go. And then finally, this is, like, the icing on the cake, Daddy Yankees hit Gasolina. <laughs> Absolute Fire is the first reggaeton song to be inducted into the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. So it's being immortalized as part of, you know, this American history. As Gasolina. it should be. As it should be. All right. <laughs> Let's go. Love it. All right. Second stat is that Walmart is closing half of its stores in Chicago because they haven't made any money 
since the company entered the city almost 17 years ago. In fact, Walmart says they've been losing tens of millions of dollars every year in Chicago, and annual losses have doubled in the past five. This is one of those stats where I saw and said, why hasn't Walmart told us this earlier? Or why didn't they move? It's been 17 years. Do they trying think- different formats? Yeah. Speaking, you know, why can't a you know a, the everything store uh, work in a, the third largest city in the U.S.? I know it. I I was truly. You said jaw dropped through the yeah. earth core. Mold. I my jaw dropped at there this because again, it's just like. How can you have? I, I mean, I understand. I'll tell you the, why. The because it, it didn't say crime or safety, which is what commonly people associate Chicago with, unfortunately, but just competition from Target, Aldi, Albertsons, which have a much bigger presence. And in general, Walmart hasn't been super successful adopting the big superstore suburban model in urban areas. I searched for a Walmart in New York City <laughs> yesterday, and there's not a single one within the New York City city limits. There's one right on the outskirts in Queens, right on the border, but there's not one in the city limits. So it hasn't even tried to come into right. New York because of all the competition. It's so Yeah, it's so interesting. I see Target's pretty frequently. I live right near one, but you're right. Now that I think about it, I have, I've never seen a Walmart here. No. All right, third stat, Dick Wolf. Dick Wolf is the most uncancelable man on the planet. His shows just keep getting renewed. It's absolutely insane. This guy, known for producing Law & Order, had six of his dramas renewed by NBC for next season in the Law and & Order and Chicago franchises, and also has three other shows running on CBS concurrently. So now he's put his name on more than 84 seasons of TV, which is more years than he's been alive. SVU going on 25 seasons. Regular Law & Order, 23. Chicago Fire, 12 seasons. Chicago PD, 11. He's like the DJ Khaled of of television producers where he just pops up everywhere. Who knows how much he's actually doing, but his name is attached to yeah. a lot of stuff. Very impressive. And you know what's even more crazy? I've never seen a single <laughs> one of these TV shows. What the heck, Neil? <laughs> I haven't seen a single one. We're so bad. I guess we're we're too, we're maxis. We love HBO Max too much. Yeah, maybe if Law & Order will come there, obviously it won't. But um, yeah, I've never seen it. Apparently, apparently it's, uh, I think it's the comfort viewing yeah. thing that, you know, the HBO guy was talking about. For sure. Okay, Neil, have a fun little story to wrap up our show. As we all know, Major League Baseball has introduced some new roles this year meant to speed up the pace of play in games. That includes things like limiting pickoff attempts and also instituting the use of a pitch clock that gives a batter and a hitter 15 seconds to in between pitches. So far, there's been near universal praise for the average for the uh, for these new rule changes. The average time of games has dropped by 31 minutes. But I said near universal praise because the concessions department of stadiums are not as happy as the rest of the baseball world. That's because shorter games means less time to buy food and more specifically, less time to buy beer. So historically, MLB teams have cut off beer sales in the seventh inning so people don't get overserved and have a chance to sober up before leaving the game. But now those teams are some of the teams are extending beer sales into the eighth inning because games go by so much quicker. So what do you think about the this push to increase the the time that you can sell beer sales? Well, it is interesting that it could lead to more drunk driving because they push it later into the game. Mm-hmm. So we'll, obviously we'll we'll monitor that. Um, but it just I don't know when something like this happens, like a rule change about a pitch clock, and then you think about all of the secondary effects that it impacts is kind of interesting. Right. Like it has, it has a bearing on the economy. The fact that they put a pitch clock on like bars might sell less booze because games last 
less time and people are you know leaving the bar earlier train i was thinking about train schedules you know (laughs) they usually bunch them at 10 o'clock 10 30 to get the you know people from games and now they're gonna have to move them up to 9 30 to 10 and kind of switch around their schedules there and then tv ads maybe there's less inventory during a game and they might Right. Arm their revenue this, that way. You're so right. The The product on the field improving might have this butterfly effect yeah. and like lead to less money. And I also thought it was interesting that MLB doesn't set rules around beer sales, mm. which on the surface you would think that they would be the governing body. It's actually up to the stadiums themselves. And they've been... I, I'm sure they know the data. Like if you overserve past a certain point, it leads to negative consequences yeah but now they're kind of like sacrificing that uh because these these rule changes they said that you know uh, baseball stadiums are not just baseball stadiums anymore you can buy a beer after the seventh inning you just need to know where to go where to go they're all attached to breweries a baseball stadium is basically one big brewery at this point especially (laughs) san diego's i went last summer it's just a it's a brew pub and there happens to be a game going on in the background there's like 17 different breweries there and you can just go you can just go drink beer and there happens to be a game going on and probably buy beer after seven innings so First of all, congrats to your Rays, 12-0. and 0. Thank <laughs> you. Best team, like, ever in the history of baseball. We love it. All right, that is our show. You can always reach us at Morning Brew Daily at morningbrew.com. Let's roll the credits. The show's producer and editor is Emily Milliron. Our technical director is Yuchenna Waogu. Our supervising producer is Bryce Beloff. Kai Morgan and Raymond Liu are associate producers. Dan Bauza is our everything. Hair and makeup has jury duty. Devin Emery is our chief content officer. Our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow. Tomorrow.